Let's go to the book of Hosea. As I say, he's one of what we call the minor prophets. And you, if you recall, when we introduced the series, uh, they're not called minor because they're less important or less significant. It's because their prophecies, their books are shorter than the others. All right? Uh, brief, more brief than the other, than the, what they call the major prophets like Isaiah, um, Ezekiel, and so on. So we come now to Hosea. I have given a subtitle to this book, and I've called it God's Unfailing Love to an Unfaithful Wife. Now we're going to try to summarize this book in order to show how that is demonstrated throughout the book as well. This is how it begins. The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Berai, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now this gives us some idea of the date and the author in this opening verse. Now, first of all, as far as the date is concerned, this is a long period of time indicated here, covering about at least 50 years, perhaps more than that as well. Hosea was therefore a contemporary of Amos. I think we did Amos. Did we? No, we haven't done Amos yet. We should have, because Amos came just before him. He was a little younger than Hosea. And also of Isaiah. Uh, They were contemporaries as far as the ministry was concerned. The time of his ministry was about from 750 to 725 BC. Now, if you recall, the fall of Jerusalem occurred when? 720 or 22, 722, 720, the fall of Jerusalem. So you can get some idea of the period in which Hosea ministered. It was a very difficult time as far as the historical concept is concerned. Now, as you read through this book, you'll see that Hosea writes from his heart. His book is full of passion and emotion. He feels what he's writing because he's experiencing it. As you read the words that he writes, you can hear him crying almost as a prophet of God speaking out for his people. And this book of Hosea is a book about the love of God and how Israel had rebuffed and ignored that love. It's also a story of God's unfailing love in spite of persistent unfaithfulness. And that is thing that you have to look at when we study this book. God's unfailing love toward his people in spite of continual unfaithfulness. Now one of the things that is usually overlooked and underemphasized when we study this book, and I found that as I was going through some of the resource material I was looking at, is although the idea of discipline was mentioned, it was not focused upon. Rather, it's God's faithfulness. Now, it's important for us to emphasize that, but we must also realize 
that unfaithfulness always results in discipline. Always. And sometimes even when we apply this to the marriage relationship, we forget that. All we emphasize is forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. We need to do it. But we must never forget that there's discipline involved when a person is unfaithful. And we'll see that as we go through this. But I want to bring that out right now because I think it's an oversight in many commentaries. Here's a key verse. Verses 19 and 20. Let's read that together, please. Now, this is the word of God. Take a look at this, because this is filled with so much, not only truth, but love. God is saying to his people, Israel, I will betroth you to me for how long? Forever. That's a commitment. Why this is important, there are many people who say that God divorced his people Israel. He gave them a bill of divorce. Uh, I don't believe that is true at all. I believe he came to the point of doing it and said that he would. And he even acted as though he did, but he didn't. And we'll see why. And this is one of the verses. I will betroth you to me, not until you are unfaithful, but forever. And we can see in the book, it is in spite of your unfaithfulness. All right. Well, I mention this is because many people who take the position, and there's a big, uh, there's, a, there's a, quite a discussion by the theologians on this issue. Many who take the position that God divorced Israel and actually gave her, not only threatened her, but gave her a bill of divorcement, uses that as a basis for Christian divorce. The idea being, if God divorced for unfaithfulness, then the Christian can do the same. I believe that is not sound reasoning or even biblically correct. And we try to express that as we go along. And this is one of the reasons right here. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. Notice that, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. You will come back. You will come around. That's a tremendous passage of scripture and one we need to remember. Let's look at Hosea very briefly, and this is only briefly. Hosea names mean the Lord saves or salvation. Actually, it's the Hebrew word Joshua. All right? It's actually the word that, uh, for Jesus in the Greek, if you want. Uh, salvation, Savior. That's the meaning of Hosea. No other Old Testament book mentions Hosea. But it appears that Jeremiah wrote, read his prophecy. No other mentions in the Old Testament at all. Although he, he is quoted three times in the New Testament, once by Jesus himself. And the writer talking about, out of Egypt if I call my son. And we'll see how he uses that scripture here. He prophesied in the northern kingdom. Although he had also messages that he spoke towards the southern kingdom, Judah. Because as you remember, the kingdom was divided. It's called the south and the northern 
And you had kings for the south, you had kings for the north, you had prophets in the south, you had prophets in the north. But there was overlapping in many cases. As I mentioned earlier, it appears that Hosea was younger than Amos, who prophesied to Israel, and older than Isaiah and Micah, who prophesied to Judah. So he was seemed to be a younger person here when he began his ministry. Here is an idea of the territory of the two kingdoms at this time. This is one of the most um, successful times, if you want, of, in Israel, considering both the northern and the southern part. Uh, they had a vast territory. The economy was good. Uh, people, like we would say in the Bahamas, they were making money. Uh, everything was, from an economic point of view, was good. But the spirituality and the morality was poor. In one sense, it's almost how we are in the Bahamas right now. Well, I shouldn't say right now because our economy isn't that good and everything else. But it appears that whenever an economy is good, when everything is good, the morals go down. And that seemed to be what was happening in Israel at this particular time. Great success politically, economically, but spiritually, morally, it was in the pits. That's the sort of the situation there. Now, a key to understanding this book, the book of Hosea, is to understand that Hosea's adulterous wife, whose name was Goma, along with her children, their story is told in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Their life stories serve as an analogy of the Lord's experience with Israel. And that experience is described in chapters 4 through 14. But actually, if you read the first three chapters, you get the whole story that is given concerning Israel in chapters 4 through 14. Because Hosea's life with his wife Gomer and the children is a template, prototype, if you want, of the history that Israel had with God at this time. Now, here is a quote from one of the sources that I use. Uh, the story, Undying Love, the story of Hosea and Gomer by Richard Strauss. This is what he says. Quote, Jeroboam II was on the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel, and his military exploits had extended Israel's borders farther than they had been since the days of Solomon's glorious kingdom. It's a time of expansion. Tribute money from subject nations was pouring into the treasury and the capital city of Samaria, and the people of Israel were enjoying a period of unprecedented popularity. See? So this is a tremendous time for them. All right? And in light of this prosperity, what could not be seen was the judgment that was ahead of them, although the signs were there. Because as I brought out just now, only a few years after uh, Hosea stopped prophesying, died, uh, and, and we had the fall of Jerusalem. And there were all kinds of signs and indications of God's judgment coming. But the prosperity hid that from most people. And their eyes were not on that at all. 
they were enjoying the good life. Now, when you look at the writings of Hosea and Amos, who were prophesying at the same time, you'll see that whereas Amos focused on the social injustice, Hosea focused on the spiritual unfaithfulness. So God was addressing the nation, north and south, and he was focusing on the sins in both areas. One was focusing on the moral injustice, uh, the oppression of the people, especially, moral decay, and the other was focusing on the spiritual unfaithfulness. Now, Hosea's call to ministry was a call that caused him to act out the relationship between Yahweh and the nation. In other words, God especially appointed Hosea to live out in his life what his, God's relationship was to the people of Israel. He was a living illustration of God's relationship to Israel. That's the key to understanding this book. You must see it. And you must see it also to realize that Hosea was therefore in a unique situation as far as his marriage is concerned. In other words, Hosea's marriage is not a typical marriage. It was not a typical marriage. In fact, God called on his prophets to do some real crazy things. I mean, you should read some of them. Walk around naked. Eat some stuff you don't want to eat. Uh, he really uh, called them to do some, some drastic things. And he calls Hosea to live out in his own life his relationship to Israel. Why? Because he viewed Israel as his wife, as his bride. All right? Now, as, as I mentioned, as is often the case here, when there is prosperity, material prosperity, there's also spiritual degeneration. And God was grieved over what was happening in the nation. But what grieved him more than anything else was the idolatry in which his people had fallen. This is what grieved the heart of God. An understanding idolatry gives us a basis for understanding why God is so hurt emotionally when idolatry is committed. Now, let me read you some of the passages in Scripture that talks about idolatry and what it means spiritually. Now, 150 years before Hosea came on the scene, Jeroboam I introduced idolatry by setting up golden calves for the people to worship. And once that was done, idolatry spread. This is why when you read scriptures, you'll find Jeroboam the first being set up as a 
uh, landmark. They will say that he was the worst king since Jeroboam. Never since the days of Jeroboam and so on. And that's the reason why. Because he introduced idolatry and the worship of when you see golden calves and so on. Listen to the words of an angry, disappointed God in this connection. This is what he says. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol, and their divinest wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains, and burn incense on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth. Because the shade is pleasant. It seems that this is where a lot of the um, idol worship is carried on top of the hills under these trees that had a lot of shade. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. That's Hosea chapter 4 verses 11 through 13. And notice chapter 13 verse 2. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols, skillfully made from their silver, and all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. That's the form of worship, idol worship. Now, God is not talking about physical adultery here. He's talking about spiritual adultery. Because God viewed Israel as his wife, his bride, he viewed her worship of other gods as spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness. Now, the Old Testament speaks very frequently about Israel, and the word that is used, they go a whoring after other gods. Let me read you a couple because this is the background for the book of Hosea. Deuteronomy 31. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going, and they will forsake me, and they will break my covenant which I have made with them. Now notice that word, covenant. That's important. Because the covenant takes up an important part in the book of Hosea. In fact, from chapter 4 on, deals with a covenant, an agreement made with God. And that's what he's talking about here. God sees that as a marriage contract. As a marriage contract. Listen to this one. Judges 2. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which the fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. God regarded idolatry as spiritual adultery because it shows the unfaithfulness of his people toward him. What was the first commandment? Do you remember? 
That's right. That's what you and I vow when we get married. Leaving all others. Isn't that right? That's what God was saying. I'm going into this covenant with you. And you are to leave all others, all other gods, and worship me alone. You see. And the unfaithfulness of the people, God regarded as spiritual adultery. All right. Keep that in mind as we go. Let's look at the outline of the book of Hosea. Just briefly here. You see that we've divided it in two major parts, the book. First three chapters contain a parable, as it were. A living parable, as Hosea is told to go and marry a wife of harlotry, a prostitute. He has children by her, and then she is unfaithful to the marriage. This relationship illustrates the similar unfaithfulness of Israel in her relationship with the Lord. Hosea's marriage portrays Hosea's message. Actually, portrays God's message. The remainder of the book consists of God dealing with Israel and how they had broken the covenant with him. But both at the offset and the close of this section, the covenant is mentioned again in chapter 6. It is mentioned in chapter 12. The covenant is important. It's an agreement that God made with Israel. And Israel said, I will be faithful to you. But they were unfaithful. And God is bringing a case from chapter 4 to the end of the book against Israel that you have broken the covenant. Therefore, I have all the legal right to divorce you. He lays out the case. Now, I didn't say I will. I have divorced you, but I have all the rights to do it. And this is why his love and compassion uh, and faithfulness stands out. Because although he has the right legally to do it, he doesn't do it. That's the message we have to see here in the book of Hosea. I want to look at Hosea's family as a prophetic portrait. This is what verse 2 says. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry. And he describes it, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, I want you to think about this now. You are a servant of God. You are a prophet. You are a pastor. And God says to you, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. Will you quit the ministry? You see, this is not a normal marriage. This is something that God sets up to teach a lesson. Now, this shows a couple of things. This is quite a stark situation here. That illustrates how serious the message is that God wants to get across. For him to ask his servant to do that. Now, again, there's some people who take a different view of this. Some people says that when Hosea married Goma, she was not a prostitute. Others says, no, the text seems to be clear that she was a prostitute. All right, uh, I believe that is so. If she wasn't as fragrant as she was, she was living a loose life. 
In other words, she appeared to be one of those ladies who were enjoying the good life because everything was so good. All right? And here you have uh, a real straight-laced fella. Go to church every Sunday morning, evening. Does everything. And here you have this girl out here, uh, high society, drinking, smoking pot, doing all of that. And God says, now I want you to marry her. You know, they just don't seem to go together. But that's the situation. That is what God is doing here. Now, when God told him, now notice it says, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. God is already in that statement portraying what Israel had done to him. All right? How his bride had become a harlot and had gotten children out of that harlotry. God is describing his situation already. All right? Hosea was told to marry a woman who would reflect the same level of purity and devotion that Israel demonstrated toward God. Goma, Israel. Hosea's marriage would become a paradigm for God's relationship with his people. By looking at Hosea's unfaithful wife, they would see themselves. Now this is key to understanding the book of Hosea. Now there's a lesson here for us. Our marriage today is also to reflect the relationship of the Lord with his people. Actually, it is Jesus Christ with his bride. Our marriage relationship is to reflect that relationship. Husbands are called to love their wives, how? Sacrificially. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives are to show the same submissive and respectful and loyal nature to their husbands that the church is to show towards the Lord. This is all in Ephesians, and we'll look at this later on as well. All right? The book of Hosea then focuses upon God's loving faithfulness toward Israel in spite of her unfaithfulness toward him and the discipline she had to face as a result. Again, it's important for us to understand that discipline is involved. Now, in Hosea's case, he was called to play out the role of the Lord and his relationship to Israel. Hosea was to be like Yahweh, and his wife, Gomer, would demonstrate the same unfaithfulness that Israel had demonstrated. Now, when you look at the book, you can get some other illustrations as well as far as relationships are concerned. You can see the book as describing the relationship with Yahweh and Israel. You can see the book as describing the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. Because remember now, in spite of the fact that this was prearranged, he still went through the experience. He still had emotions. He still had feelings. It also can be um, looked at as a relationship between Christ and the church. It can also be regarded and seen as the relationship between the husband and the wife. So this book of, here of Hosea contains much Tremendous truth here concerning relationships. But now, in each case here with these relationships, the onus, 
the burden for faithfulness, the burden, the owners who would show sacrifice and the spirit of forgiveness is the male. In the sense of Yahweh in Israel, it's Yahweh who is called upon to show faithfulness and to show sacrifice. Hosea is the one to do it. Christ is the one to do it. The husband is the one to do it. In other words, when it comes to faithfulness, sacrifice, spirit of forgiveness, the book shows that the onus stays with God, not Israel. Hosea, not Goma. Christ, not the church. And the husband, not the wife. Not meaning now that they shouldn't be reciprocal, but I'm just saying in this story, this illustration, it is the husband, it is Yahweh, it is Hosea, it is Christ who's doing it. However, what is demanded of the bride? What is demanded of Israel? What is demanded of Gomer? What is demanded of the church? What is demanded of the wife is faithfulness. And what is also clear is that if there is a lack of faithfulness, discipline will follow. They go hand in hand. But now Hosea's portrayal did not end with his relationship with his wife. He was also instructed by God to have children. We had some other instructions when he first created male and female. What did he say? Enough said. But there's another relationship that is a message intended by God. His relationship of Hosea with the children of the marriage. This is what it says. Verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Name him, this is the first child, Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So God now does not only choose the wife, he chooses the name of the children. Now, the name of this first child was to be a reminder of a great evil that had taken place in Israel's political history. This evil took place at Jezreel. Now, when God told Gomer to name this child Jezreel, and this was his child, this one, it was like telling a Texan, if you all know the story, to name your child Alamo. Or telling a Jewish person to name their child, Dach what's the name of that camp there, uh, Harry? Dachau, Dachau, the place where so many Jews were killed. That's what's happening here. He's pick, picking, choosing one, a place where an evil had happened to the people of Israel. And God says, I want you to name that baby, that child, with that name. And what happened at Jezreel was that Jehu was assassinated. But not only that, the king 
then went ahead and he killed at least 70 of the descendants to be sure that they didn't reign on the throne. So it isn't just a matter of killing one person or two, killing out a whole generation of people. And that was a terrible sin here. Now, the Valley of Jezreel became a symbol for the place where God evens things out because God destroyed him because of that, took vengeance. Now, we know this same place, Jezreel, today by the name of one of its major cities, Megiddo. It is this city that has given rise to the name that now Armageddon. And this is a picture of that. Those of you who have visited Israel, I'm sure you've visited this place. The Valley of Armageddon. This is the location of the final battle, as it were, between good and evil, between God and the devil, if you want. This is where God is going to finally bring everything to a conclusion right here. And God says to Goma, your first child, is to remind you of that fact. That I will even things out. I will punish for sin. That's the first child. But then Goma had another child, this time a girl. Now, for reasons I'm not going to go into here because this is a summary, Hosea had some doubts as to whether or not he was the father. Because Goma had already started running around, playing a hollow tree. So Hosea could not be sure that this second child was his at all. Verse 6, Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I should ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. In other words, he was going to do it directly himself. Now, this word, lo ruhamah, is also significant. The Hebrew word means no compassion, unloved, or unpitied, which means that this young girl here would not enjoy her father's love. And from a practical point of view, it's because he wasn't sure. In fact, he was pretty sure that she was not his child because of the harlotry of Goma. The Lord was giving testimony that the northern kingdom would be given no respite, but it would be destroyed. On the other hand, though, Future hope is offered to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now again, this name was symbolic of Israel's wandering from God's love and the discipline she would soon experience. So God is naming the children to illustrate, to prophesy what he'd be doing with Israel. But then Goma had a third child. And God instructed him to name this child Lo Amai. When she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo Amai, for you are not my people, and I 
I'm not your God. Now, this is a really, I want you to see the degrees of discipline and punishment here that was going on. Now, the Hebrew word, am I, refers to people. Hosea named this child, not my people, or no kin of mine. This is a message. This child ain't mine. Now, this is a striking rebuke here. The people of Israel had rightly thought of themselves as the people of God. That's one of the things they boasted in. But now, God, you've lost your right now to consider yourselves to be my people. And so this name, this child, symbolized Israel's alienation from Yahweh. But it also pinpointed Gomer's sinfulness and her harlotry. Because the child that was born in his house was not his child. And so by these children and the names given to them, Yahweh is telling the northern kingdom of Israel that judgment is upon the horizon and that they will soon be judged for their sins. But at the same time, in the midst of those words of judgment, he gives words of hope, as he always does. Just listen to these words of God. In Hosea 1, verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Now remember, he's giving these things back to back. You're not my people. You will be my people. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now this is a promise of future hope in the midst of judgment. There will be a future restoration of the people of God. This is an amazing prophecy and it impacts us as well because Paul reveals the prophetic fulfillment of this passage. Listen to what he says. Book of Romans. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, speaking to Jew and Gentile, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles were never called the children of God. And he says also in Hosea, he quotes Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. That's the bride. That's the bride. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. I want you to see how Paul interprets the passage from Hosea. He points to the fulfillment in those whom God has called, not only from among the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Hosea is seen in us sitting in this church today. The church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? We have been given the title 
the sons of the living God. Not only that, we've been called the bride of Jesus Christ. The big question is, are we faithful? Or are we playing the harlot? I think we'll stop here for this evening. We'll pick it up. I couldn't finish tonight. There's too much good stuff here. We'll finish up now. I'm going to ask Terence to close for us in the word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight and for this chance so we get to hear your word and um, for the reminder that, that you love us in spite of our, our sin and uh, sometimes deliberately disobeying you even though we know what we should do. Um, Lord, we thank you for your discipline uh, that we all need at times. It is, it is meant to lovingly restore us. So God, help us to not fear your discipline, but to embrace it and see it for uh, the tool that it is to bring us back into a loving relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that you, you always take us back. Lord, bring us back next week. Keep us safe this week as we go through our daily lives and routines uh, to keep you first in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.